0: Our scripture text this morning is from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Give you just a moment to find that, And I'm just going to say a couple of words before we read it. This morning, as you may have noticed in Andy's email, is Reformation Sunday. Um, you know, as a Reformed church, we don't follow a church calendar. We're not bound to celebrate this in any certain way. But it is a, an appropriate time to look to a particularly important scripture uh, for the Reformation and for the recovery of the gospel. So I'm really excited about this this morning. I hope that we can learn a little bit more about this gospel that we proclaim as a Reformed church. So I'd invite you to stand and we'll read from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. This is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This ends the reading of God's word. And Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray together. Father, one more time as we come before your word now, we come before you in prayer and ask that you would teach us, Father, and that you would show us the glories of the gospel in these short verses, even in verse 17 in particular, and that we would have the same heartbeat, Lord, as Martin Luther had and as the Reformation had because we are gripped by the gospel at the deepest level of our hearts that we are forgiven by faith in Christ. We pray that you would teach us and that you would show us Many things from your word this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. You see, there's one doctrine, mm-hmm. one biblical teaching that more than any other <coughs> doctrine is the, it, this doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning is the blood pumping organ, you could say, in the chest of Christ's church. And that's the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In any local church or any denomination that goes into cardiac arrest on that doctrine, it's over for them. Unless they can be recovered by a robust understanding of this biblical doctrine we're going to look at this morning. And this doctrine really is in desperate need of recovery. LifeWay Research and Ligonier Ministries conduct this study every year that's called The State of Theology. They collaborate on this, and the findings are always interesting. Uh, The study assesses what Americans generally and what American evangelicals specifically believe on matters of theology and of the faith. And their findings related to the doctrine of justification in this year's study was particularly troubling. Forty percent of Americans agreed that Quote, an individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. Okay, well, that's, that's Americans broadly. But what about evangelicals? What about folks who really profess the gospel? Well, the results weren't all that much better. 30, 36%, 36% of the self-identified evangelicals agreed that our good deeds partly contribute to earning our place in heaven. 36%. And here's what it means. Setting aside percentages and studies and statistics, thinking about individuals, about hearts and souls who have, that have missed the heart of the gospel. This is what this means. It means there are far too many professing Christians, self-professed gospel believers who believe and live their lives under the understanding that they in some way, even in some small way, have to contribute by their own works to their eternal salvation. And the weight of that misunderstanding will crush a person. Maybe you've thought that in the past. Maybe you think that and you know the weight of that idea that I must contribute in some way to my standing before God. It's absolutely devastating. And there are only two options when that's what you think the gospel is all about. You can do two things. On the one hand, you could minimize what God requires. You could, you could lessen the standards of his law so that at least you have some chance of living up to it. You can minimize what he teaches, or you can throw your arms up in misery and despair. And that latter option, throwing your arms up in misery and despair, that was the route taken by an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. We know Martin Luther as the one who started this reformation and recovery of the gospel, that at one point Martin Luther was a miserable monk. This problem of God's perfect holiness over against his own woeful inability to live up to that standard, it it infuriated Luther. More than miserable, he was mad. And he says so. Luther wrote that before he knew what our text this morning was really talking about, he said that he hated it and he was angry at God when he read it. I've updated the language just a little bit, but here's what he told his students about this misunderstanding he had about the gospel, specifically from Romans 1.17. Luther wrote, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost in Adam are crushed by all sorts of terror by the Ten Commandments. As if that wasn't enough, he says, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged, Luther says, with a fierce and troubled conscience. Without having God at pain to pain by the gospel, and by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. See what Luther's is understanding the gospel to teach? A gospel that threatens us. But what kind of gospel is that? That's not good news. So how did Luther get that from Romans 1.17? How did he think that the gospel threatened us with God's righteousness and wrath? Well, let's look at the verse and see, just as Luther would eventually see that far from threatening us with wrath and with terror, the gospel as expressed in Romans 1.17 is the only hope for desperate sinners like you and me. And what I want you to see this morning, really to understand and just rejoice in, and bask in this morning, and rest in this morning, is this. Because God gives us the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, we must put no confidence for our salvation in our own works. That's where we're headed this morning, and we're going to look at particularly verse 17. We're going to see three vital, essential, crucial gospel truths. First, there is a God-given righteousness. Righteousness. Secondly, the God-given righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. And finally, this God-given righteousness is received by faith alone. So first point, there is a God-given righteousness. Look at verse 16 with me. Because Romans 1.16 really sets up verse 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek just going to summarize what he's saying. This, this is basically what he's saying. He's saying, I won't hold back, and I won't back down from proclaiming the gospel. I won't apologize for boldly proclaiming the gospel, because it is through this good news that God saves sinners. He saves Jews and Gentiles. He saves men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the power of the gospel. And I'm not ashamed to say it. That's what Paul's saying here. Wouldn't that be a great thing to wake up in the morning to to, to live by? that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and I'm not ashamed of that. I won't back down from it. That's my mission, to proclaim this gospel. He was 100% committed to proclaiming this good news. No matter what the opposition, no matter what harm it might bring to him, he was not ashamed of it. But why is it such good news? Why is Paul so fired up about preaching the gospel? Well, verse 17 comes in. For in it, verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Luther, as I mentioned before, he hated this verse. Absolutely hated it when he read it. He thought that when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, that it meant the gospel revealed God's holiness, God's own inherent righteousness, his unmatched perfection and holiness. But Luther thought, if that's the case, that's what the Ten Commandments do, the summary of God's moral law. They reveal God's perfect holiness and righteousness, his standard. If the gospel does that, then how is that good news? That makes it a new law. It just makes it a new law. Luther thought that this so-called good news really just had the message, obey. When he read this, he said the gospel is just saying again, obey. And if that's the ladder that you had to climb to reach a favorable standing before God, from sinfulness to righteousness, do you think you could climb that ladder? No. None of us can. None of us could climb the ladder. The first rung would break under the weight of our sin, and that's what troubled Luther. He knew that he couldn't do this. Well, let me illustrate this another way. Um, I've adapted this from someone else, but I think it's Uh, Really helpful. Think about it like this. It's as if you owed 1,000 silver dollars. Any of you remember the real silver dollars? We talked about real pennies last week. Well, imagine that you owed 1,000 silver dollars and you were only able to pay back 1,000 copper pennies. If that's the case, have you paid your debt? No, you're still in debt and you can't be declared absolved from your debt. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the silver dollars. And your copper pennies, that's good money. There's nothing wrong with your copper pennies. What's the problem? You don't have the silver dollars, right? You don't have the amount that you owe. And the person that where I got this uh, illustration from, he, he wrote, connecting this to Romans 7.12, so we say, in other words, what we're saying here is that there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. If you could do what, you, what it demands, you would live by it. If you can do what the law demands of you, you would live by it. Because the law is given to us as life. But since none of us can obey the law, and since none of us do obey the law as it's laid down by God, we don't obey it to the letter, we are not justified by works. So here's the point. The price that we owe is fair. The law is good. Even as a way to salvation is good. But if that's the only way... For sinners to be saved, and it's bad news, isn't it? Because none of us can perfectly obey the law. It's impossible for us to meet its demands. You have to pay what you owe, but you can't, right? That's the problem. If you could perfectly obey the law, you would receive life for your obedience. It's like the larger catechism, question 20 says, perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. That's the requirement of the law. If you're going to be saved by law, if you will receive life, According to the law, you are required to give perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And not a single one of us can do that. Leviticus 18.5. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Romans 10.5. Paul says, for concerning this righteousness that is by the law, Moses writes, the man who does these things will live by them. And then Jesus tells the rich young ruler, you remember the young ruler came and asked him, Lord, how can I have eternal life? And he presses home the law to him. He shows him how it is that you can live by law to show him that he can't do it, actually. Matthew 19:17, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. That's the way to life by law. But there's a problem, and I hope that by now it's, you've picked up on this from the illustration. Every human being owes this perfect, ongoing, personal obedience, perfect obedience to the law. But we can't do it because our works are imperfect. They're good works. There's no doubt about that. We, do, we are able to uh, do good works, but they're imperfect. And because they're imperfect, they aren't worth a plug nickel when it comes to paying back this gigantic sum that we owe. For sinners, the law as a way to life, good though it is, fair though it is, It's too rich for our wallet. We can't pay that price. So what do we need then? If we owe perfect righteousness but can't possibly pay it back, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope or should we rage with a fierce and troubled conscience like Luther said? There is hope. Of course there is. That's the good news that we're going to look at this morning. There is another kind of righteousness not righteousness that comes according to the law, another kind of righteousness. And this is the righteousness that Romans 1 17 talked about, that Luther had missed. God given righteousness. A righteousness that God gives. That's what this phrase means in our verse. Look at what Paul says. We want to turn over to Romans 5 17. Romans 5 17, Paul compares what Adam earned for all mankind versus what Christ earned for his people. Romans 5 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, and here he's talking about Adam, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. That leads us to the second vital gospel truth we're going to look at this morning. There is a God-given righteousness, a free gift of righteousness. What is that righteousness? This God-given righteousness is the righteousness of Christ himself. That's the righteousness that God gives. We need righteousness. No matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter how impressive our religious resume is, we simply can't reach that standard. And if anyone could have reached that standard, we know it was Paul, right? Paul was well aware that he had the best resume there was. If you want to turn over to the book of Philippians, or just listen from chapter three, middle of verse four and following, here Paul is making the case that against these, these individuals who are requiring the Philippian believers to undergo circumcision, and he was requiring them to be they were being required. Uh, circumcision was being required of them so that they would be righteous before God, so that they would have a a favorable standing before God. But here's what he says, kind of mocking them in a sense and and boasting. But we'll see that it's not a boast at all, really. He says in verse 4 and following, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Count them as rubbish. See, when it came to the righteousness according to the law, Paul had a Ph.D. in lawkeeping. Right? That's Paul. Ph.D. in lawkeeping, Ivy League, top of the class, perfect in every way that's humanly possible. But Paul realized that his Ph.D. in lawkeeping was really just the other kind of Ph.D. It was the other? You know, there's another kind of Ph.D. Right? It's what one of these um, one of my professors told me. A, a dairy farmer told him a few weeks ago. He said, I have a Ph.D. I have a Ph.D. too, professor. So really? Yeah. Piled high and deep. (laughs) Right. We have some farmers here. We know what gets piled high and deep out on the farm. That's the other kind of Ph.D. I I don't say that just to insert a little humor. That's what our English translation smooth out with this polite word rubbish. It's rubbish. Paul was disgusted with his good works. They were like the piles high and deep, steaming out on the farm in the summer sun. That's what he considered his works to be. Compared to what? Compared to knowing Christ. Compared to what he received from God and Jesus Christ. See, that's all our good works amount to when it comes to our justification. Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, God-given righteousness. This is the gospel. And you know, it isn't new. It didn't just show up on the page in the New Testament. It's been a long time in the making. If you remember, Paul opens his letter to the Romans in this great explanation of the gospel and its implications for our lives. He opens up this letter with these words, verses one and three of chapter one. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. And he goes on. So let's think about this Promised beforehand through the prophets descended from David. What is someone who was aware of the Hebrew scriptures thinking at this point? Well, they might go to Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Speaking of Christ, God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. A righteous branch from David whose name will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's the promised Messiah. And Paul says that this is what the gospel reveals. The righteousness that God gives. The righteousness of Christ. You see, the good news is more than just Christ's death in our place. A lot of times we think of that. We just think of the cross as Christ in my place, and that is the good news. And that is good news, but it's only half of the good news. That's only half of the good news because we need his life in our place too. We need his righteousness. Righteousness is required. We don't just need a forgiven standing before God. We need a righteous standing before God. So if we were to stand in God's court and argue our case based on our own good works, on the, on the good things that we have done ourselves, what would happen? The gavel would come down with an unappealable verdict, guilty. We need someone else to stand in our place for our failings. We need his righteousness. When we stand in God's court, it's not our good works that we appeal to, no. Christ's righteousness is laid out, and what does the gavel come down saying? Not guilty. Not only not guilty, we're actually declared righteous. See, that's what Paul means in this final statement, which is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. As it is written, Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. Or as it may also be translated, and if you're reading from the ESV, there should be a footnote at the bottom of your page. It can also be translated, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. You know, there's really no competition between these two translations. They're not at odds with one another. They have the same meaning at their core. It doesn't mean those who are righteous in and of themselves, faithful, perfectly obedient, those shall live. No. It means those who are declared righteous shall live by faith. That's the sense that this word carries in the Greek. Those who are declared righteous shall live by faith. Or those who by faith are declared righteous shall live. See, in 2 Corinthians 3.9, for example, you have condemnation and this word righteousness set side by side as opposites. So you have the declaration of condemnation and what is the opposite? The declaration of righteousness. It's a legal declaration. We have to be declared righteous in God's court. And this happens when we receive the righteousness that God gives, which is the righteousness of Christ. So on the one hand, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Sometimes people summarize the doctrine of justification, just as if I'd never sinned. But it is also just as if I had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. It's, It's Christ in our place, both in his death and in his life, his righteousness. His active obedience is another way to put it. His perfect obedience all the way through his life up into the cross, and even on the cross. That obedience to God is imputed to us, it's credited to us. And that's good news, right? Because as we sing, we can't do it. You know, one of our sister churches, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, was founded by a man named Jake Gresham Machin. And you would think, man, this guy started this Reformed church and. He was involved in starting Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. All of these great acts that he had done for God. And when he was on his deathbed, uh, at least the last, I don't know if these were his last words, but it was his last telegram that he sent to a colleague. So his dying telegram said this, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Stop. No hope without it. Stop. So his dying telegram, this giant in the faith who really just rested in Christ alone. There's another man, David Dixon, who wrote the first commentary on our confession of faith way back when. These are his, di- his dying words. He said, I made a pile of my good works and a heap of my bad works, and I fled them both to Jesus. See, there is something that gives us a peace even in the face of death. When we are not relying on our own works. going back to that survey of theology in our country at this point, If people are thinking that their righteous works have to in some way contribute to their salvation, to their place in heaven, what does that do to a person when at the end of their life, they look back over all that they've done and they wonder, did the balance weigh out? But that's not the gospel. That's not the righteousness that is by faith. Christ's righteousness for us, that is the gospel. See, every one of us here this morning, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, You need to get this point. We all need to get this. There is absolutely nothing we can do. There is nothing that we ourselves can do to earn God's favor and forgiveness. Trying to earn God's favor by what we can do is the most miserable hamster wheel you could ever run on. Any of you ever have hamsters, I had hamsters as a kid and you watch the hamster running round and round and round and round and round in the wheel and I noticed something about this. This whole, it was a game, right? The hamsters have been duped because you can't get anywhere on this wheel. You go absolutely nowhere. And that is exactly what it's like when we try to earn God's favor, when we try to earn our salvation by our own works. We get nowhere. And Roman Catholicism places people on this hamster wheel because it confuses justification and sanctification, it lumps them together, and that is disastrous for the gospel getting into a little bit of history here, but it's important. The decree of the Council of Trent. So this is a church council. And what the Council of Trent has decreed in the Roman Catholic Church cannot be revoked. Because to them, anything a church council decrees is just as good, just as infallible and eternal as the words of scripture. This is what the Council of Trent says that justification is. It says, quote, not remission of sins merely, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So what they're saying is your standing before God justification this making oneself right before God or the, well in their case is not just the remission of sins but it is also the sanctification and renewal that occurs in us. Do you see what they're doing there? They've lumped our own progressive growth and godliness and our own progressive renewal. We call this sanctification. They've lumped that into the meaning of justification. And what's more... They also say if anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of Christ's righteousness alone or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of the grace and the love which is poured forth in the hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, inherent in the person. Or even by, even if someone says that this grace that justifies us is only God's favor, let him be anathema. What they're saying is that if anyone says that justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, not by any works that we do, not by any of the things that result in our lives after justification, if if all that is set aside and someone says it's only by faith alone, as we say, then let them be anathema. You might remember that word from the book of Galatians. It means to be cut off, to be excommunicated. In scripture, that means to turn someone over to condemnation. So this declaration by the Council of Trent nearly 500 years ago cannot be reversed because, like we said, Rome thinks that this is absolutely infallible. So in essence, what they're saying, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that anyone who believes that justification is by faith alone, that the righteous shall live by faith in the sense that we're looking at it here this morning, that those are condemned to hell if you don't change your mind on that view. A lot of Roman Catholics are unaware that's the case, and a lot will deny that that's precisely what it means, but that is what it says. And that is the word of the Church, of the Roman Catholic Church, on justification by faith alone. But Reformed churches, on the other hand, on the basis of Scripture, confess what is taught in the Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 20. Question 20 asks, What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which He pardons all their sins. Accepts and accounts their persons as righteous in his sight, not for anything worked in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Received by faith alone. And that leads us to this final gospel truth that we want to look at this morning. There is a God given righteousness. That righteousness is Christ's righteousness, and it is received. By faith alone, this God given righteousness, received by faith alone. And here is really where we get to the heart of what I really I really want to drive home this morning. As I said, because God gives us the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, we must put no confidence for our salvation in our own works. In other words, believe. That's the call. Believe. This God given righteousness is received by faith. It is, according to Romans one seventeen, a righteousness from faith. For faith, So the righteousness isn't faith itself. It's from faith, and it's for faith. Or a clearer way that we could accurately translate that, some translations go this way, is by faith to faith. By faith to faith. So faith lays hold of this righteousness. It apprehends it, and it lays hold of it in the gospel. And then that righteousness is given to faith. So it's by faith to faith, by faith alone. Our confession teaches, again, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. It is by faith. That's how this is accomplished. That's how justification is accomplished. It's by faith. It's never alone, the confession also says. This faith does bring forth good works in the heart of the grateful, forgiven, justified Christian. But when it comes to the declaration of our standing before God, works have no place in it. No works of our own. Faith has nothing in itself. That's the nature of faith. Faith believes in something else. It doesn't contribute anything. It looks away from yourself to another and says, I lay hold of that. And in this case, Christ's righteousness. You know, I was was reading about this this week thinking, and uh, a year before the Titanic sank, year before it sank, there was an employee of the White Star Line who boldly said, not even God could sink this ship. Not even God could sink this ship. All of our self-reliance, all of our self-righteousness, all of our boasting that we have no need of grace, that we are a good person on our own, that gets ripped apart when it comes up against the holy, righteous standard of God's law. That is the iceberg that sinks the ship that we've been sailing on self-righteousness. And at that point, only God can save that ship. Only God. And faith reaches out like a shipwrecked person, reaching out with an empty hand to grab the raft that has come to save him, that has come to help him live. That's what we're looking at when we talk about faith. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. So how does faith lay hold of Christ? How does it do this? How does it reach out? I mean, faith, I mean, it doesn't have an actual hand. So how does this happen? Well, the confession tells us that the primary or principal acts of saving faith are this, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Notice those verbs. Accepting, receiving, Resting. What do you notice about that? Nothing is contributed. It is receiving, accepting, resting in something that has been done. We have been made righteous in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are given eternal life in Christ by faith alone. And this truth was Luther's great breakthrough when he was reading this and wrestling with it and wondering how in the world this could be good news. This is what he realized. He realized that the gospel offers life by faith alone. And he goes on and he explains it. And then he says, this is what he felt when he finally had this amazing discovery. He said, I felt that I was completely born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Then and there, a totally different face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So this Bible, this book, Luther was a professor of theology He was a monk. He studied this book through and through. And when it dawned on him that the righteous live by faith, and when the gospel of God's amazing grace in Christ broke through to Luther, the Bible became like a book he had never read before, full of good news that he had never noticed in all of his studies. So, as we draw this to a close this morning, I want to read you a beautiful example of how this truth led one of our Uh, early church Christians, early church fathers to praise the Lord. You see, justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, sometimes people say, well, that was just invented in the Reformation. That's just a Reformation invention. We are on the side, the Roman Catholic Church would say, we are on the side of the church fathers. You all are inventing something new. What I'm going to read you is from the letter to Diognetus. We don't know who wrote it, but it was written about 200 years after Christ's life on earth. It's beautiful. Beautiful passage. The writer asks this question and ends up just breaking out into praise. He says, What else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings. That the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Oh, the sweet exchange. 200 years after Jesus' death for sinners, this writer is praising God for the sweet exchange. Like Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. What we're learning from Romans 1, 17 is that God has laid Christ's righteousness on us so that we may be justified, forgiven. Jesus takes my sins and dies in my place and I receive his righteousness and live because of his finished work. That's the sweet exchange. That's justification by faith alone. That's the gospel of Romans 1.17. And these, these truths you see that we've been learning about this morning, they're truly the old, old story of Jesus' love. For you and for me. But at the same time, the good news of justification by faith alone is new news. How can it be the old, old story and new news? Well, to close, this is how James Buchanan, an old Scottish preacher, uh, put it like this The gospel is older than Luther, but to every succeeding generation it is still new. Good news from God, as fresh now as when it first sprung from the fountain of inspiration. It was new to ourselves, surprising, startling, and affecting us strangely as if it were almost too good to be true when it first shone like a beam of heaven's own light into our dark and troubled spirits and filled us with a peace which passes all understanding. It will be equally new to our children and our children's children when they come to know that they have sins to be forgiven and souls to be saved, And to the last sinner who is convinced and converted on the earth, it will still be like good news from a far country. Surprising and startling news from God. Good news. News that we need to remember and to boldly proclaim to others who, like ourselves, desperately need to hear it. Because God gives us the righteousness of Christ by faith, we must put no confidence in our own works for salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a heart that believes. We thank you for this good news, Lord, that our salvation does not come by anything we have done, but only by what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we pray that our own hearts wouldn't trick us into thinking that we in some way have to contribute, that in some way you are displeased with us until we figure things out on our own. Lord, we thank you that you care for us enough, Lord, to reach down in our misery, Lord, and to lift us up by the amazing grace of Christ in this gospel, not just at the beginning of our life, but throughout our life until we see you face to face. We pray that you would Make this the case for us, Lord, that we would never lose sight of this good news, that we would believe, Father. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.